1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 to chapter 3, verse 5. Paul writes, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But God's wrath has come upon them at last. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown or boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourself know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be all in vain. Amen. Now, if you can keep uh, one finger there, and if you could turn up as well to Acts chapter 16, 17, 18, that little section in Acts. And as you do so, let me pray for us. Father, we pray that we would learn as a church family and as individuals tonight from this very helpful letter, and that we would find ourselves really being spoken to encouragingly from you whose voice lies behind your word. And we pray that in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now, on Sunday nights, we are working through Mark's gospel. We have a little gap in the term card tonight, and uh, I'm preaching at a conference in the summer, and I've promised my wife that I'll finish the preparation before we go on holiday so I get a chance to prep the sermon tonight. Uh, do give me some feedback. I value that as I prep it for the summer. I have a whole shelf of uh, books in one of the many bookcases in our house on one subject, and the subject is the church. Here are some of the titles, Gospel-Centered Church, Simple Church, 
Messy church, ready, steady, grow church. Now, there are great books and much of the stuff we do in Chalmers and much of the stuff that other churches around our city do is based on the many good ideas in these books. There's an unwritten rule in the kingdom of God that you can copy someone else's idea without penalty. There is no such thing as divine plagiarism. And almost certainly, the people who write these things in these books have copied it from somebody else. But the best books about how to do church are surely the many books in the Bible about the church, not least the New Testament letters. And 1 Thessalonians is an excellent case in point. And what the Bible has to say about this little church in Thessalonica is so encouraging. It is, I guess, pretty close to what we might call authentic church or a model church. And it's just a baby church. It's less than a year old when Paul writes his letter. It is barely out of the starting blocks, and yet a model of what it means to be an authentic church. One of the challenges Paul sets when he writes to the church in Thessalonica is, will they go on as strongly as they have begun? But they have begun really well. And when he writes to them, they are strong. Paul refers to the church as our glory and joy. Chapter 2, verse 20, as we read, for you are our glory and our joy. That's a pretty strong encouragement from the apostle to this church. Now, a bit of background will help us understand the context and the purpose of Paul's letter. And if you turn where your finger is to Acts chapter 16 to 18, we can see the background explained to this letter. Paul and Silas came to Thessalonica to plant a church somewhere late in the year 49 AD. And he prayed tonight for churches that have begun in this city, like Cornerstone, like Edinburgh North. Now, Thessalonica is just like a church in a city planted in the year 49 AD. Paul and Silas had come from Philippi. You can read that in chapter 16. Just look at that in Acts, where they had also planted a church. Philippi, chapter 16 of Acts, had been a little of a roller coaster experience for Paul and Silas. The gospel had taken root. People had been wonderfully converted in Philippi. But Paul and Silas had been beaten with sticks, imprisoned, and then miraculously released with that wonderful conversion of the Philippian jailer. Leaving Philippi, Paul and Silas traveled some 95 miles along the Via Ignatia, and we pick it up at Acts chapter 17. You'll see the heading in the Bibles to Thessalonica. They came with a simple message, the simple gospel to a strategic city and a strategic opportunity, Thessalonica, capital of the Roman province of Macedonia, a great place to plant a church. It already had an established Jewish population, 
So Paul and Silas, as was their custom, their first port of call was the synagogue. So read with me Acts 17 and verse 2. Paul went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. He preached the simple gospel. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a many of the devout Greeks, some of the Jews, as did many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews, the majority, were jealous And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, where Paul and Silas were staying, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. In the upshot, Paul and Silas were forced to leave the city. After hardly any time, a month, maybe a little longer, in this church in Thessalonica, just think of it, a month, it's not a long time, the apostle Paul was there. They're forced to leave this fledgling baby church of new believers. I try to get into the Apostle Paul and Silas's mind as they left the city within an inch of losing their lives. What a wonderful beginning Paul might have turned to Silas to say in that little church. God really moved amongst them. They responded to the word of God. And what chance do they have of surviving now? Paul and Silas go to Berea, the next town, no doubt with heavy hearts. Timothy probably joins them in Berea. It's not long before the Jews who opposed Paul in Thessalonica came after him in Berea. Look at Acts 17, verse 13. When the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed to Paul in Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. It's pretty hostile, isn't it? And they send Paul away to Athens. Paul is all alone, alone with his thoughts. His mind must often have turned to the little church in Philippi and what had happened to them. But he had no way of knowing. The months passed. Paul is eventually joined by Timothy and Silas in Athens. And almost a year since they had been forced to leave Thessalonica... Now turn back to the letter, 1 Thessalonians, almost a year since they had been forced to leave. Paul reflects on that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17. Paul writes, since we were torn away from you brothers for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. He's writing out of the context of when he was in Berea, then in Athens, and then eventually Corinth, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again wanted to come and see if you were going on strongly, but I was hindered by Satan. The Apostle Paul is crystal clear on the supernatural dynamic of the gospel. He is crystal clear on the supernatural forces that oppose the gospel. Chapter 3 and verse 1 of our letter, Therefore we could bear it no longer, 
We were willing to be left in Athens alone. Paul uses the royal we, we as in me on my own. We could bear it no longer. We were willing to be left behind in Athens alone, all alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, in order to establish and exhort you in the faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. Paul loved this church, and he longed to know what had happened. Had they stood firm, had they remained strong in the face of this opposition and these afflictions, or had they buckled? He desperately wanted to know what news would Timothy bring. Well, the news Timothy brings is good, chapter 3 and verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, in verse 8 of chapter 3, it's very striking, isn't it? Paul writes, for now we live. I'm alive in my heart, Paul says, because you are standing fast in the Lord. What a wonderful statement that is. For now we live because you are standing fast. This little church had remained strong. The opposition is no less strong, but the Christians in Thessalonica, this church, they are going on strongly in the Lord, a real authentic church, strong and steadfast, clear and enduring. Now, these are the circumstances behind Paul writing his letter to the Thessalonians. You see the circumstances? He's been torn away from them in body but not in heart. Almost a whole year. He sends Timothy from Athens to find out. And I think even in Paul's heart as the apostle to find out the bad news. Timothy comes back with this great news. Paul well, I would have given him 10 minutes, 10 minutes, and he reached for his parchment and his pen, and he wrote the letter we know as 1 Thessalonians. And what I'd like us to do tonight is consider in a bit of detail a section in the letter, chapter 2, verse 13, to chapter 3, verse 5, and to look at it to learn about what is going on inside this authentic little baby church? And inside the service sheet, you'll see a couple of headings. I did say a couple of Sunday mornings ago that all sermons, if they're any good, the number of points are multiples of three, which I followed up by a four-point sermon and a two-point sermon. So there you go. There are two exceptions to the rule. Two headings, and uh, let me confess that uh, in the spirit of the fact that there's no such thing as plagiarism in the Christian church, I borrowed these unashamedly from somebody else. Mr. Lucas, there you go, I've confessed. They're brilliant, though. They just get it right at the heart of it. A church committed to the Word of God will experience affliction. A church committed to one another will keep on going when they experience affliction. It's exactly right. One, a church committed to the Word of God will experience affliction. 
Read with me from verse 13 of chapter 2. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And Paul had come and preached the gospel when he had reasoned from the scriptures about Jesus. They had accepted Paul's message, not because he was a persuasive speaker, but because they believed that what they heard from his lips was the word of God. The word accepted is telling. It means they submitted to it as the word of God. Now, for us, we have Paul's teaching along with the other apostles' teaching in our Bibles as the New Testament Scriptures. Together with the Old Testament Scriptures, we have all the Word of God. It is a critical point in the life of an individual or in the life of a church when the Scriptures, the Bible, are accepted individually or corporately as the Word of God. Accepted in the sense of submitted to or lived by or lived according to. Now, Chalmers is a church committed to the Word of God. That is a good and a healthy state. And to be a church committed to the Word of God is a dynamic living thing. Why? Because the Word of God in the hands of the Spirit of God is a dynamic living thing. Paul's words, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. It is dynamic, it is living, it is powerful. The Word works in us to change us. In those who submit to it, and in the corporate life of a church, if it submits to it, it converts them. So what happened last Sunday night with Tarek is no surprise. It's wonderful, though. (laughs) The Word of God, because it is dynamic, transforms lives. And it does it along with lots of others to create a transformed community life. A real living church. But that dynamic, that change the Word of God works in us, not only converts and creates a Christian community, it is a dynamic, it is a life about it that leads that community to look outwards, a community that looks out and reaches out with the Word of the Gospel. So Paul writes in chapter 1, verse 8, of how the Word of the Lord, the Gospel, has sounded forth from you, little fledgling church in Thessalonica, into Macedonia and Achaia, your faith has gone forth everywhere. The gospel has sounded forth. That's a mark of a church committed to the Word of God, the Word of God at work in them, and the Word of God going out from them. So a church committed to the Word of God will experience God at work in them and through them and out from them as they reach out with the gospel. Now, that's a good thing, isn't it? It's a positive thing. A church committed to the Bible is not a church committed to some dry and dusty ancient book. Rather, it is a church committed to something that is living, active, 
dynamic, supernatural, the Word of God at work in us, out through us. And the more a church is a church committed to the Word of God, the more, some would say, in our day, it is out of touch with people. But the truth is, the more a church is committed to the Word of God, the more a church is in touch with the living God. And therefore, of more relevance to the community in which God has placed it. Striking that, isn't it? It's one of Dick's insights when he preached on this. A church committed to the Word of God is committed to the living God. And the living God, with His living Word, transforms that church so committed that it lives by the Word and holds out the Word. So a church committed to the Word of God is a good thing. So why isn't it and here's Dick Lucas again, 1971, preaching to a church jam-packed full in the city of London on a Tuesday lunchtime. So why is it, he said, that across the city of London or across Edinburgh this morning, that the majority of churches that open their doors for business are not committed to the Word of God because it works? And... Dick was the first to say that St. Helens is not heaven. Chalmers is not heaven. And churches like Central and Grace Church and Charlotte and all these other churches are not heaven. But they're the growing churches because they are committed to the Word of God. Why do churches that are not growing Commit to the Word of God. Well, the answer to that, or at least one answer, is that a church committed to the Word of God will experience affliction. The inevitable connection between a commitment to the Word of God, the true biblical gospel, and the experience of affliction is all over this letter. Let me show you chapter 1, verse 6. You became, Paul writes, imitators of us and of the Lord. In other words, your experience was the same as ours and the Lord Jesus, for you received the word in much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Their commitment to the word of God brought with it much affliction and joy in the Holy Spirit. The impossible paradox of a living church. The first part of chapter 2, Paul recalls his own experience, Silas and the church in Philippi. There, just like Thessalonica, the commitment to the Word of God came with affliction. The end of verse 2 of chapter 2 in our letter, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of the God in the midst of much conflict. Chapter 2, verse 14, for you brothers became imitators of the churches of God that are in Judea, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who opposed the gospel in Judea. Chapter 3, the end of verse 2, Paul sent Timothy to establish and exhort them in their faith, so that, verse 3, no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this 
For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. Now, the Apostle Paul kind of lets us into what it was like when he was with them for these three weeks. He said, brothers, it is wonderful what is happening, but look around you. There are just as many afflictions as progress. That is normal. And he says it at least six times in the letter. It's normal. A church committed to the Word of God would experience affliction. It is inevitable. It is unavoidable. The word that Paul uses at the end of verse 3, we are destined for this, is a word that means you have an appointment in your diary with afflictions if you become a Christian or if you are a church committed to the Word of God. Your diary, like mine, will be full of appointments. Most of my appointments are you. Let me encourage you. You're not afflictions. Well, you and I need to add to our diary on a Tuesday, on a Thursday, or our church diary as we look at it next year, next Saturday for next year, you and I need to add to our diary afflictions. And do not be surprised when they come along regularly. Do not be surprised, Peter writes, as if something strange were happening to you, do not be surprised when you find it hard being a Christian or a church committed to the Word of God. It is normal, it is abnormal not to experience afflictions. It's not that you go and look for them or create them. Sometimes as Christians we can. It's not that you panic when you're in a season of not experience afflictions. The point is when you do, you don't wobble or think that something strange was happening to you. What is the nature of these afflictions? Well, for Paul and Silas, Timothy, for the Christians in Thessalonica, for the church there, for the church in Philippi, it was direct opposition to Christians simply because they believed in the gospel. And moreover, direct opposition against them to stop them telling others the gospel. Opposition simply because they were Christians and opposition because they wanted other people to become Christians. The opposition for them came from the Jews. In our day, the opposition to Christians, churches across the world, churches committed to the Word of God, opposition comes simply because they are Christians. Because as Christians in whose lives the Word of God is at work, they want to hold out that Word, they face opposition. That is the pattern all over the world today. Churches committed to the Word of God will experience affliction. I would encourage you to spend some time looking at the Barnabas Fund literature, for example. You will read of churches committed to the Word of God experiencing progress, and you will read on the same page in the same paragraph of these churches experiencing affliction. Always. And it's beginning to happen in this part of the globe. If as a church you are committed to the Word of God, 
You need to put some appointments with affliction in your diary in the Western world today. If as a church, your commitment to the Word of God is such that you have a desire to share the Word of God, then you need to put a few more appointments with affliction in your diary. On a very practical and personal level, when you try and tell people the gospel, you experience the affliction of a brick wall or no response or people thinking you're in some kind of sect or whatever. I think from the rest of the letter, particularly chapter 4, Paul maybe has something else in his mind when he talks about afflictions. That is the struggle we have as Christians individually and as churches to remain distinctive, different vis-a-vis the world around us. Paul refers in chapter 3, verse 5, to temptation, maybe with half an eye to what he goes on to say in chapter 4 about holiness. And of course, behind the opposition, behind the afflictions, is Satan, the devil, opposing the purposes of God. Paul refers to Satan in chapter 2, verse 18, as the one who hindered Paul. In chapter 3, verse 5, as the tempter. Satan is living and dynamic at work to afflict us, not as powerful as God, but real. You know that Satan really is a nasty piece of work. One of the privileges of being a pastor to you is that I see the battles in your lives. And what I see is Satan going for you in your weakest points. And he does it to me. He's a brilliant discourager. He's a brilliant disarmer. He's a list with his number one way to take down every Christian and to take down every church. But he cannot win. A church committed to the Word of God will experience affliction. Now, second and much more briefly, A church committed to one another will remain strong. Now, I think we would be daft to think that as Christians, I promise you much more briefly, I think we would be daft to think as Christians or as a church experiencing affliction because of a commitment to the Word of God that we will find it easy or be indifferent to it and not be tempted to throw in the towel and compromise or be silent for an easier life. Or actually do that, as many have done. Isn't it striking when you get into the anatomy of the heart of the Apostle Paul 
that you rarely find him rejoicing in progress. He's honest. He's real. There are many places in the New Testament when the Apostle Paul expresses his despair, his broken heart, when churches, when Christians slacken their commitment to the Word of God, or even worse, his last letter to Timothy. What does Timothy, what does Paul say to Timothy? Andy, leave the thing, yeah? Doesn't matter. What does Paul say to Timothy? Will you, Timothy, the last person that I can have hope in, desert me? Will you leave me? Will you desert me? It's all too common. That's why Paul was concerned for the church in Thessalonica. It's not a hypothetical concern. He really thought they might throw in the towel in the town. And you see, when he gets this news from Timothy, that the apostle Paul just kind of loses it. And he can't help himself saying, God, you just have no idea how thankful I am. They are my life. I live again because they're strong. You know, when I go and visit another church, I was in Musselboro a few weeks ago. Always when I'm in another church, and it's genuine and I can say so, I went up to the minister of the church and I said, I said, Graham, let me say to you, this is a living church. Now, he knows there are more problems than I know. How do I know it's a living church? Because they hunger for the Word of God. How is it that a Christian, how is it that a church stays strong, steady in affliction? How is it that a Christian or a church keeps on holding out the Word of God, the gospel, when common sense says for a quieter life, stop. Or go silent. Or the question at its most fundamental, how do you keep going as a Christian? How do you keep going? Well, commitment to God, trusting God supremely, of course. God will advance His gospel. God will judge those who oppose Him. Chapter 2, verse 16, God's wrath has come upon them. We keep going because we trust God, of course, but along with that, we keep going because we are committed to one another. A church committed to one another will keep going. It's all over the letter, Paul's commitment to this church. The letter is full of affection. It is full of commitment, of care for them. He describes himself as a father and as a mother to them. He would do anything for them, sacrifice everything for them. He sends Timothy to establish and encourage them. Paul was committed to them, yes. Timothy was committed to them, yes. But the fact is that without Paul and Timothy, the church had gone on strong because they were committed to one another. That's the striking thing. They weren't strong because they knew Paul and Timothy were going to return. They had no idea. They were strong because Without Paul and Timothy, they had remained committed to one another. Now, what does real commitment to one another look like in a church in practice? Well, a church where right across the church family, there is a commitment to the Word of God and to an encouragement in the Word. 
A church where people listen and engage with preaching. A church that takes seriously its commitment to teach the Word of God to its young people. A church where people study the Word of God together in small groups. A church where people are established, taught, and exhorted, encouraged in their faith. Homes where families, couples, individuals with others establish and exhort one another. You can see why the elders want to encourage us all to be in small groups. Such a good environment for the personal encouragement to keep on growing, to keep on holding out the gospel. Or our elders in the church as they lead us, an eldership committed to one another will remain strong. Let me tell you, that is exactly the nature of our elders' meetings. There is far more than there ever was, a real commitment to one another, a real commitment to listen, to establish, to encourage, that we meet, might lead the church well. I meet with a group of people every couple of months to share and pray together. We met this week. I read from 1 Thessalonians. We reflected on afflictions. We encourage one another. We prayed for one another. We are committed to one another. Now, it's easy to formulate this kind of commitment into structures like small groups. In truth, it's not about structures at all. It's about intentionality. It's about affection. It's about love. It's about humility. It's about servant-heartedness. It's about care the real support that comes when someone is afflicted, the honesty to challenge, even to rebuke, real commitment. Now, as we close, when we speak about commitment to one another, I guess there are two practical applications for each one of us within a church family. The first is this, am I willing to receive that kind of commitment from others? I think that is the more pertinent application, to be honest. Not will I give it, but will I receive it? Am I willing to receive it? For to do so will nudge me back onto the front line of a deeper commitment to the Word of God. I hope and believe and pray we are willing to receive that kind of commitment from others. And then secondly, am I willing to give that kind of commitment to others? To do so is a selfless thing, a sacrificial thing. But to be a blessing to others within a Christian community bears no greater privilege or worth. I hope and pray and believe we are willing to give that kind of commitment to others. And so a church committed to the Word of God will experience affliction. And a church committed to one another will remain rock solid and strong. That is an authentic church. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this picture of an authentic church. We thank you 
for this very real and powerful reminder that a commitment to the Word of God brings with it afflictions. The opposition simply against people because they are Christians. The opposition that comes from persuading others to become Christians. Opposition strong or less strong. Opposition nonetheless. The affliction that comes from being tempted to lose that distinctive, transformed community life that is so attractive to those looking on. Lord, we acknowledge the reality of all of that, and yet we are encouraged that a church committed to one another will remain strong in the midst of corporate and personal afflictions. And we pray like this little church in Thessalonica, we would be as a people here, committed to one another, affectionate, loving, humble, servant-hearted and caring, that we might be a church that endures and in enduring continues to hold out the word of the gospel that many will hear and believe. Lord, our prayer is that we would be such an authentic church. And we pray that in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.